part of my fear was getting into a job that I've invested so many years, so much time, so much blood, sweat and tears and money, and then getting into it and realizing this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. And that's what I think one of the biggest fears that people have is investing so much into their, their career and then finally getting into it and realizing that they hate it. You know what I mean? So finding an internship, finding more internship opportunities is going to help you determine what you like and what you don't like. And if you don't like it, take that in stride and, and realize that, okay, now I know what to avoid. I can jump ship or change gears or look for something else. It's better that I know now and not three or four or five years from now. Hey everyone, today I'm here with my friend Alan, who is a civil engineer. I'm really excited to talk with him today. He's actually the second civil engineer we've had on the podcast, and uh, he said he listened to the show and had had some good feedback on it. So I'm excited to dig in and get a second perspective on civil engineering as a career. Alan, thanks so much for being on the show, man. Jameson, thanks for thinking of me and having me on. I'm really excited for this. Awesome. Let's jump into it. How'd you get into civil engineering? How did you pick civil engineering as the engineering career? Excellent question. So I tried to boil it down to one word. I really call it providence. I was not planning on becoming a civil engineer. Um, my childhood passion when I was a kid was actually astronomy. I love space, stars, anything outside of the earth. I just thought it was so big and, and beautiful and wonderful and complex. But once I got to school, I got to college, I knew I wanted to pursue education past high school. I realized that and with what I wanted to do with being an astronomer, I needed to get a PhD and my personality. I just didn't want to go to school for another 10 years yeah. and kind of throw my twenties away. You know, I, I was young, you know, you only live once. I wanted to, I wanted to get out and enjoy my youth. And, and uh, so I, I tried to, to look for something much more practical. And what led me to civil engineering was I was trying to find something that, you know, good job security, uh, I love, I'm a visual learner. So I was really looking for something. I really enjoyed the tangibility of what I was learning. I would go to class and learn about how to design a bridge and then walk outside and drive across one, you know, so the applicability was something that was very uh, attractive to me. And uh, and not, not to mention that specifically what I do is involves more the water side of civil engineering. And so everybody needs food, everybody needs water, you know, so I figured that as long as I don't do anything stupid or illegal, I should never have a problem keeping a job. So. Yeah. That's good. It's yeah. a good thought. I like it. How long have you been doing it now? So I finished school in May of 2018. Um, it took me five years to finish school. Uh, it was, I had, I had to do a victory lap, which is completely normal when you know, we were just talking about that, you know, yeah. um, but I finished in May of 2018 and my job brought me to Austin, Texas, where I currently practice. And I've been doing this full time for about four and a half years. I did do a couple of internships in college, but this was in fact, my first a full-time job after being a full-time student uh, as an undergrad. Nice. Was it through the internships that you found that job or was it some other way? Actually, it was not. It was a different way. And so right now I feel like I just kind of get a little philosophical for a second. I really feel like the magic way to get a job right now in our generation is networking. Uh, you've really got to know somebody at the end of the day. And so the first two internships that I had were through various contexts that were unrelated. And then ultimately, the job that I ended up landing uh, here at Moody Engineering was also a product of a different avenue of networking. Uh, in fact, I was a part of the, the men's chorus at Texas A&M. And through a show that we did, I was made in touch with my current boss. And he was just looking for hires straight out of school, happened to be an Aggie. And turns out his, his wife... 
uh, and him have known my mom's best friend from high school for like 20 years. Crazy. So there's a crazy connection, you know, and, and so that's how I got in touch was actually through my mom, which she's not a numbers person at all. So the fact that she had a connection was just crazy, but, uh, but yeah. 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 Networking is kind of the name of the game. The more people that I'm talking to, the more I'm hearing that story where it's like, oh, yes. yeah, I knew so-and-so who knew so-and-so. Yep. And then it was some random, you know, luck of the draw, it almost seems. And so, yeah, that is the way to do it. And and your Perfect. network is more than just going out and handing out business cards. That's really not what your network is. Your network is your friends and friends of friends and their friends. It's exactly right. And you know a lot more people through that network than you realize. And that's that's how I'm getting everybody on my podcast to start. And uh, you know, you know a lot of people. So don't don't count out your network and just imagine that uh, the only way to get a job is to apply online and hope for the best. Yes sir. Yes. That old adage of 6 degrees of separation like you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows everybody, you know, so it's it's very true. Yeah. All right. So let's take a step back here real quick. For those that don't know, explain what civil engineering is in a nutshell. Great question. So civil engineering is actually one of the oldest forms of engineering. Uh, it's often equated with military engineering. So as, as humans first began to sort of organize themselves and try to figure out how to build a bigger, better, more potential society, uh, they needed infrastructure and they needed to be able to travel. They need to be able to communicate. They need to be able to have housing and shelter and means to make a living, right? And so that's essentially the crux of, of civil engineering. Anything to do with infrastructure, communication, transportation, housing, shelter, you name it. If it's it's something that's not already naturally occurring, then it was made and designed by somebody that's civil engineering. So something that was interesting when I was looking up your specific position that kind of piqued my interest, your firm doesn't just do civil engineering. You also do something called forensic engineering. Can you talk about that? Because I had never really thought about that as a full-on career path. Tell me about forensic engineering. Yeah. So admittedly, it was completely new and foreign to me until I came across uh, this firm that I now work at. And so, of course, it piqued my interest. And so I thought, well, I've never heard of this before either. What does it mean? What do you do with it? You know, and, and at first it sounds like, oh, wow, you're out, you know, solving crimes and being a detective, you know, and, and admittedly, it's not that, right? You're not going to, I'm not going to be called into an episode of NCIS or anything like, as, as much as that would be super fun and cool. But the forensic aspect can best be translated to reverse engineering. So basically, as a forensic consultant, part of my job is somebody has some type of infrastructure failure. Uh, 90% of really what it come, boils down to is, if you're familiar with Hurricane Harvey, uh, when that hit Texas and hit Houston, so much damage occurred as a result of that storm from property loss, property damage, flooding, uh, various structures failing, uh, all, of, all of those sorts of things. When those things happen, people's initial reaction is to metaphorically point the finger. It's it's whose fault was it? Who is to blame? What went wrong? Uh, and so, you know, the, the insurance agencies get involved and then the lawyers get involved. And if they can't figure it out, then they, then we get brought in. The engineers, the expert witnesses do. You'll hear that term. You'll hear me throw that term around a few times. Expert witness testimony or a third party. Uh, we provide those those types of services as well. But the forensic aspect of it is a failure or a problem has already occurred. Nobody knows how to figure out. So we get brought into essentially reverse engineer or put together the context, the contextual pieces to try to figure out what happened, what went wrong, not necessarily to figure out who who to blame, because that's more of the lawyer or the the uh, litigative side of uh, of the process, which is not what we do. It's all as 
objective, evidence-based consultation as it can be. And then ultimately, more importantly, once you've identified the problem, what's the solution? So that's the the essentials of, of the forensic or the reverse engineering aspect of it. Yeah, I just I saw that and I thought that that sounded so cool. How common yes. is forensic engineering as part of civil engineering? Are there a lot of firms that do this? Is it a really specialized niche? Like, can people actually go into this knowing I want to be a forensic engineer? That's an excellent question. It is a very specialized niche. Uh, it's 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 not something that's common at all within the civil engineering industry, mainly in part because. Being a valuable forensic expert or an expert witness, you mainly have to have two things on your resume. You've got to have as much experience as possible. So typically a forensic engineer or a forensic consultant is going to be older yeah. uh, because the, the attorney that you're working for or the individual or the company that you're representing is going to have a lot, is going to have a lot more trust and security in your services, knowing that you've quote unquote seen it all, right? So experience is the be all end all. Uh, and the second thing is, is having communication skills. You've got to be able to explain and convey technical solutions and technical issues to problems to people who are non-technical. And it's not at all a means of, oh, someone is less smart or more smart than the other. It's just a means of how do I explain? Translating. You got it. It's translating. It's literally Spanish to English, English to Spanish. It's, it's, it's quite literally the same process. So how do you get a non-technical audience to understand the engineering issues of what we found and what we're trying to explain? Yeah, that makes sense. So Alan, what skills and education are required to become a civil engineer? I think everybody knows you need the college degree. What else do you need? I would say that, so there were a few questions you'd asked me sort of in the pre-screening process that I honed in on. And I came up with three, I think, kind of golden egg skills that you need to be an effective uh, engineer, not, not even specifically just civil, but if you really love engineering as a whole, you need to make, you need to be a good decision maker, you need to be a systems thinker, and you need to have technical skills. And so what do, what do I mean by those? I was very surprised at the degree of confidence and assurance that you need to have as an engineer to be able to make decisions. At the end of the day, hmm. metaphorically, you're the one steering the ship. You know, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, if, if I was the captain of, of a ship, you know, sailing across the ocean, how much benefit is it to my crew knowing that I know where we're going? I know exactly where we are. I know where we've been. And, and I know, I know that we've been where we're going. It's, it, it does so much for the, the confidence and the trust in your crew, knowing where that, you know, where you're going, right? So being able to make a decision, but having the confidence to, to do so without lying or being, you know, with, with lacking transparency is so important. Systems thinking is the best analogy I could come up with is, like a spider weaving their web, right? So a spider weaves this big giant web, right? And he's trying to get from one side to the other. And in doing so, there's a million different ways you can do it. You could go in a straight line across, you can go around the edge, you can pick a bunch of different paths to get to the same end, you know, or you can sit there and think about, oh, instead of taking this path, why don't we just walk across the other side of the net? You know, there's there's all of those sort of this quote unquote out of the box thinking to the degree that you need to understand your system and your ability to problem solve a hundred different ways and how everything relates to each other. Because as you begin to work on new projects and try to solve problems that people bring to your table, their trust and accountability and their assurance of your ability to perform is going to be so much more net 50-50 in that you're going to uh, provide them a 
a track record of, yes, we can do it this way, but you're also trying to meet their own personal needs. And the technical skills, you got to be comfortable with numbers, spreadsheets, 3D design, 3D modeling, uh, hydraulic software, AutoCAD, GIS. You probably, that term was thrown around in, in, in Reed's uh, interview because uh, he, he's also a civil engineer. Those are vital. You can't be afraid of technology and numbers being an engineer. Yeah, that was literally my next question. So let's break into that a little bit. What software are you using in your day-to-day job? Uh, You mentioned GIS, AutoCAD, Excel, Numbers. What else? Kind of give us a little bit of an overview of all those programs. Is that something that you can learn on your own before getting a civil engineering job? Is it something you have to learn on the job? Talk to me about that. Yes, great question. So I would argue that our two most crucial pieces of software are AutoCAD and GIS. Right. And so AutoCAD essentially is the industry standard for 3D design. Very common in architecture, very common in land planning, and it's especially common in engineering. AutoCAD is such a complicated program that they actually offer trade degrees or associate's degrees or two-year programs specifically for how to learn how to use AutoCAD. Interesting. Very complicated software. Its sister software is GIS or Geographic Information Systems Programming. Yes. Basically, all that is is spatial analysis, 3D uh, design. And basically like if, if best example I can think of is in 3D design, you're having to represent two dimensional objects and one dimensional objects in 3D and 3D objects in two dimensional planes. So there's a lot of science and conversions that go through when it comes to trying to make sure everything is accurately represented. We, the engineering is not a business of almost or or guesswork. It's, it's very exact. It's it's very exact. It's very precise. In addition to those, me personally, I use two pieces of software that are commissioned and maintained and published by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and that's HECRAS and HECHMS, and those stand for the Hydrologic Engineering Center River Analysis Software and Hydrologic Engineering Center Hydrologic Modeling Software. And so, basically, those two. Uh, pieces of software, which are the industry standard for what we call H&H engineering or hydrologic and hydraulic engineering, which is my specific niche or area of expertise within civil engineering or water resources engineering, as you'll often hear it uh, coined, is we use those to model rainfall, rainwater distribution systems, stormwater conveyance systems, riverine and hydraulic analysis, anything to do with water on or on ground, above ground or below ground. Those are the industry standards that we use for FEMA, uh, who's the one that, that manages the National Flood Insurance Program. We do a lot of work with FEMA, uh, as well as at the local municipal level and any anywhere in between. Uh, we use those softwares to basically assess risk assessment or risk analysis for um, flooding impacts, infrastructure failure, who's going to get damaged, and how are they going to respond when certain systems fail. So those are the main four pieces of software that I use. Obviously, I use Perfect. Excel. It's probably <laughs> it's probably the engineer's best friend Excel is. So, but, but in addition to that, those are the four main pieces of software that I like to use. Yeah. What level of math are you using in a day-to-day basis? Are you going past algebra? Are you using calculus in your day-to-day work? Because I know, obviously, you take those math courses as part of your engineering degree, but then yes. are you really using them in your day-to-day life? Short answer, no, uh, it's not. We, we, we've, we've progressed so far in terms of what software and hardware that we can use to do those things for us. That's why we, we can produce things on such a mass uh, societal wide scale. And so while it's important for in college, right? Like one of the big, big misconceptions, just to take a small tangent real quick, is that 
college is going is going to be a reflection of what you do in your day-to-day existence. That's not the case at all. That's right. For an engineer, all college is is to demonstrate to your employer that you that you can handle intellectually time management, the necessary brain power, right, to handle something like calculus or, or algebra. But I'm not using that on a, on a day-to-day basis. That's more just to prove that I can take a hard problem, take a complex problem and work through it numerically and denotatively or or even uh, analytically like the systems thinking that I mentioned earlier and break a problem down that you haven't seen before. It's those problem solving and critical thinking skills that are the crux of what makes a good engineer. And so day to day, no, these software packages that we pay for, those are the ones that, that, that do the legwork for us. We mainly just do it uh, from the bigger picture. Yeah, it's that intellectual rigor that you're trying to prove and also probably getting some just background understanding of, hey, here's how you can find these numbers and, exactly. and just how, how pieces fit together as opposed to like, okay, now build your own puzzle using calculus, using trigonometry, exactly. using all of that stuff. Yes. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So we talked a lot about the skills, Alan. So imagine that you are a college graduate, you've got your civil engineering degree or just a degree in engineering. Is that enough to get the job? What else do you need? That's a great question. Uh, yes, it is, as a matter of fact. And so within civil engineering specifically, uh, you'll you'll hear the term professional engineer thrown around a lot. I myself am a licensed professional engineer in the state of Texas. The statistic that I read is a few years old, but it goes something like this. Of all of the engineers in the United States, only about 15% of them are licensed professional engineers. Hmm. But of those 15% of licensed professional engineers, about 80% of them are civil engineers. So within civil engineering, it's very common, but you step outside into mechanical, electrical, aerospace, aeronautical, any of those more broad engineering disciplines, and you licensed professional engineers are far less common. And the reason being is because so much of what a civil engineer does is a public liability, okay? Bureaucracies, governments, municipalities want to defer the intellectual accountability or responsibility for those systems failing. And basically that's sort of where the modern practice of professional engineering came from. Now, I don't want to scare people into this idea of, oh, if I make this design as a professional engineer and it goes wrong or it fails, is my career over? It's it's not like that at all, okay? And so that's what corporate insurance is, is for, you know? And that's what, like, for example, at my firm, we have a team of professional engineers. So none of what you will ever do in this industry, you will do on your own. It's such a it's it's such a team-oriented atmosphere in the sense that no one individual is going to perfectly design or catch every little mistake in the in the design process. And so as soon as I design something, I immediately hand it off to somebody else to say, hey, catch my mistakes, improve on what's good so that we can make sure we're putting our best foot forward. Yeah. It almost reminds me of like peer review in academia. You know, you've got yes. multiple people looking at it before you assert it as your theory. You're like, hey, no, we got to have a lot of a lot of boxes checked, a lot of eyes yes. look over this before. And, and that's good. You have to have yes. those fail safes. So coming out of school, just to more specifically answer your question, um, you can get what's called your engineering and training certification while you're in school. Okay. Uh, you have to pass what's called the fundamentals of engineering exam, which basically it's a, it's a six hour exam. You can take it while you're in school, but once you pass that in your respective state, you become what's called an engineer in training. And that EIT phase of your career uh, is four years. Uh, if you just have an undergraduate, degree, you can shorten it with grad school, but unless you go into specifically geotechnical engineering or structural engineering inside civil, you don't need grad school. Okay. Basically 
all your employer or your company, your engineering company wants to see within civil is, are you intending to become a professional engineer? Because that's sort of the bread and butter of our operating, uh, uh, our operating process. When did you become a licensed professional engineer? How long did that take? What was that process like? So the whole process uh, after you finish college takes at least four years. Okay. Just a few years ago, the state of Texas uh, changed that process. They called it decoupling. It used to be where you had to finish college and then take the, the PE exam. Uh-huh. Now that's not the case. As long as you're an EIT, you can take the PE exam. Basically, the EIT certification or the or passing the FE exam is the allowance for you to take the PE exam. I see. And so, but the only way to become a professional engineer is you have to pass the PE exam and you have to have four years of experience under at least three other professional engineers. Perfect. That's an awesome answer. Yeah. You can, you can think of it much like uh, an MD residency. So if someone who goes and gets their medical doctorate, MD school is four years, right? They're, right. they're doing their residency under a, a another MD and a school and doing school at the same time. Whereas for an engineer, it's think of it as a paid residency, right? I'm, my full-time occupation is my residency. I'm not in school for it. I'm just trying to get this four years of experience so that I can go apply to be a professional engineer after I pass the PE exam. Perfect. That makes sense. So Alan, I feel like we've covered a lot of amazing stuff already. We kind of covered how to get the job. Like what are the certifications? What are the requirements? Let's go into the job itself a little bit okay. now. Walk me through a typical Tuesday. Obviously, every job, no day is exactly the same, but right. as, as much as you can, chronologically lay it out for me so that somebody gets a real feel of this is what it's like day in, day out to be a civil engineer. Here's what I'm doing. Great question. So I would start by saying really kind of what the the, the two extremes, right? So there, there are busy days and there are slow days, right? So on a more busy day, um, I'm doing things like having meetings with city officials, with clients, developers, attorneys, bureaucrats, regulatory authorities, most of which can be in the category of what I would call an internal meeting. And it's because so much of what my meeting time is spent with my design team, uh, with, with my peers, with my AutoCAD technicians, with, uh, with other engineers, with a planner, whomever it may be. Most of my meeting time is going to be mostly internal, but on a busier day, I'm going to have at least maybe one, two, sometimes three meetings with any combination of the individuals I just listed off. Because so much of what we design has to go through regulatory authorities like cities, um, you know, the lower Colorado River Authority, the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, the city of Austin, Travis County, all of those sorts of institutions that regulate the safety and enforcement of our design standards, right? In addition to that, I'm drafting reports like the software that I mentioned earlier, I'm doing a lot of modeling, hydrologic, hydraulic modeling with HEC HMS, HEC RAS, and using AutoCAD and GIS as a tools to as a means to accomplish those designs. Uh, I'm doing a lot of design and design review with my other team. So as, in as much as I hand my designs off to another engineer, another engineer hands me their designs. And so I'm going through a QAQC, a quality assurance or a quality check process uh, with other engineers for their work. I'm writing contracts. I'm trying to scope or do project planning for new business and new lines of work that, that are coming through. I'll have my what I call think tank time or brainstorming time with, with my other engineers or the owner. Or and it could be from a planning standpoint. It could be from a design standpoint or a phasing 
process. You know, so a, so a lot of what an engineer does is really not engineering. It's business practice. It's trying to work with clients and try to help them meet their goals and what they're trying to accomplish. And then also training. Uh, I've got uh, one young man who's just a few years younger than me, who's out of Texas Tech, who's currently in EIT. So I'm trying to to work with him on him building his resume and his experience and, and for him to work to one day becoming a professional engineer. So training, brainstorming, contracts, report writing, you name it. We do, we do it all. Interesting. That's what more of a busy day looks like on a slower day. I might take a long lunch with my team. Mm-hmm. You know, I might listen to a podcast uh, just like this while I'm working. You know, if, if, if I don't have to focus as hard, uh, I'll catch up with coworkers. My coworkers and I like to hang out outside of the office. We go play disc golf. You know, we take fishing trips together. Um, I can squeeze in a few errands. I can go get a haircut. I can do, you know, some of my own personal errands in the meantime and organize my office. So it's not always kind of this cutthroat, you know, you, you, you come in and it's just hundred miles an hour pedal in the middle all day, all these sorts of things. In as much as there are those busy days, there are the slower days too. And it's really nice to get sort of both sides of the coin in a day-to-day experience. Yeah, that is nice. You got some ebb and flow there. Is it normal that there's like different seasons? Like is summer really busy or is it really just day-to-day? Some days are busy, some days are not. Great question. So so like we mentioned earlier, so I do more of a traditional civil consulting type services as well as the forensics. In the civil land development aspect of what we do, the I would argue that the, the busy season is definitely the first, is Q1, is the first quarter of the year because we're coming off the holidays Everybody's kind of taking their time with with processes and they're not pushing so hard for designs because they're taking vacations and they're hanging out with family and the kids are getting out of school and it's and it's cold outside. Everybody wants to be inside where it's warm. But once the new year hits, everybody wants everything done immediately. You know what I mean? So January to April, typically very busy. And then it kind of fizzles out to a much more steady workflow during the summer. And then once we kind of get toward the end of the year, as certain projects wrap up. It's becoming much more of a once things end, you know that something's not around the corner. You know what I mean? uh, But but, uh, but to contrast that on the forensic side, because it's a legal work, we're going through the court system. That is a very slow but very steady uh, line of work, whereas our land development side is much more much more of a seasonal type service. Our forensics is much more is, is not as busy as the busy side of of land development is, but it's not as slow as when land developments gets slow either because land development and civil engineering is much more at the mercy of the market. Yeah. We hit a recession, you're going to feel it in that line of work. But when, when we're doing these legal consultation type work uh, in cases, it's it's much more of a, because the courts never slow down, right? Of course. Lawsuits are always happening. That's much more of a steady type of workflow and income for, for our services. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm I'm just curious, as you were talking, I was kind of thinking through like the workflow of how your business works. When somebody contracts your firm, do they talk to a salesman? Do they talk to one of the engineers that's, they have a scope of whatever work they're trying to, they're trying to create. How does that actually go into a contract is signed? Do you have to be part of the sales team or is it, is it pretty much just like, Oh, this, this came in, they ordered this and now we're going to do the work. Exactly. The short answer to that question is yes, absolutely. And so I can't tell you how many times, like a lot of the business that comes through our doors are just like we said about how we got the job in the first place. As you start to kind of plant your roots in a certain area, like for me, it's central Texas your name starts to get out there. And yeah, so yeah. when someone else knows somebody who has a similar problem and say, Hey, we used Moody or we used Alan, here's his mm-hmm. number, go talk to him. So I'll literally just be sitting here at my desk. I'll get a phone call and say, Hey, 
I'm a friend of so-and-so. They referred me to you. Here's my problem. Is this something you can help me with? And right there on the spot, I've got to be able to determine what's our current workflow like? Do we have the time to take on new business? Can I solve your problem? Is what they're looking for a service that I can provide? And do I have the time and the resources to be able to provide that service? So it's it's very much a, I am my own marketing team, if yeah. that makes sense. So we've, we've only got 16 people. We're very much considered a small sized firm within the engineering world. Uh-huh. We've got four licensed professional engineers that operate on our team. And then most of everybody else being administrative or AutoCAD or engineers in training essentially make up the other 75%. So we are really our own. We don't have a marketing team. We don't have an HR department. It's all us at the end of the day. Interesting. All right, Alan. So I had one more kind of follow-up question in terms of like a typical day-to-day. What percentage of your time do you think you're spending on internal communication, external communication, emails, administrative type stuff? Can you give a number to that? Absolutely. I would say 50% of my time is delegated to design, modeling, and review. QAQC, quality assurance, quality check. Probably half my job uh, on a day-to-day basis. I would say another 30% as a project manager, right? So they understand that I'm you know, coming from my, my specific role and the company is, is dedicated to planning and scoping. So just trying to basically do a cost benefit or risk assessment analysis for work that we have yet to do or are continuing to do. Right. Uh, And then probably the last 20 percent, I would say, is more dedicated to meetings and training, report writing and more just kind of brainstorming think tank type time that I spend with the rest of my team. Perfect. I'm curious because Reed also is in a similar part of his career. The last civil engineer that I talked to, you guys are about, you know, both four or five, six years into into the job and you guys are both project managers. Is that a typical timeline? Is that what you see for most people? Okay, 100 percent, because really the trust and the opportunity that comes with being a project manager is having the professional engineering license. And so that in and of itself, counting college, if you you do the traditional four-year schooling route, that four years plus four years of training gives you eight years of academic and application experience within the field of engineering. And so at that point, that four years of experience is kind of that golden time frame to the point where you've accrued enough experience through clients and your peers and all the internal operations to where you've seen enough to where you're pretty much not going to be that blindsided by anything new that comes through the door. And you understand the process. You understand what the big picture is. You you can see the forest from outside the trees, to use another metaphor. So, yeah. Yeah. What about further on career progression? Is there another quantum leap that happens? Is there, are there other career milestones that civil engineers hit, or once you've attained the level that you're at, it's kind of just maybe a little more money, you know, maybe a slight year increase as you get more experienced. Right. Great question. So, so basically I'll just, how about I walk you through kind of the whole process and sort of the, the staple in the career path for a typical civil engineer, right? Spoken like a true engineer. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Overly specific. That's right. (laughs) So right out of school. Okay. uh, You're as an engineer in training, preferably having passed the fundamentals of engineering exam, the FE exam, you're going to be hired as a staff engineer. Okay. And at that point, in terms of the industry practice, you're not going to know anything. Okay. You know how to solve equations. You, You know, the terminology, you understand the vocabulary, you can speak the language, but you have yet to have an opportunity to deliver a finished product yes. for a problem or, or a development or anything that a client 
or someone who's in need of your service is going to have, right? So as a staff engineer, right out of the gate, you're going to be just in drinking the fire hose mode is kind of what we call it. You know, you're drinking from a fire hose, you're trying to absorb and process and expose yourself to as much as possible. That typically lasts if you're hungry and you've got great opportunities, that'll typically last about two years. Okay. From there, you'll work your way into project engineering, where you're kind of, you're, you're seeing a little bit more of the forest, you're a little bit more of a bird's eye view, you understand the process a little bit more. In case in point, I might tell a staff engineer, hey, I need you to go and determine a hydraulic grade line for this stormwater conveyance system, right? And they'll know what that means, and they'll go in and calculate that and figure that out. I might tell a project engineer, hey, I need you to design the stormwater conveyance system for me, right? So a little bit more broad in, in what I'm looking for. The next step after a project engineer uh, is a project manager, right? So that phase of being a project engineer can last from anywhere to two to five years or your entire career. You can be a project engineer as a professional engineer if, if you're more introverted, sort of, the, you know, typical stereotype of an engineer being introverted, right? right? You can be a project engineer for the rest of your career if that's what makes you happy and that's what floats your boat. But if you want to accelerate to the next step more quickly, you can shorten that to as little as two or three years. Um, truthfully, you will always be a project engineer, even as a project manager, because you're kind of having to quote unquote wear a different hat you're doing both. For, for another engineer. So like, for example, another gentleman I work with is really good at roadway design. I'm not. He might design my roads for me, right? But I might design his stormwater system for him. So I'm we're always sort of trading positions internally to help each other meet that end goal. Now for project management, you can get there as quickly as four to five years. That's kind of that sweet spot that you were referring to. Uh, but with that, you're in the first step of the requirement to do that is you got to have a professional engineering license, right? And so the, really the only other big vertical step after being a project manager is being a business partner, essentially, is you are an avenue for business processes for the company. Like I'm going out and I'm finding business and finding new work for us to do. At that point, you've got stake in the company and the company is dependent on you for putting food on the table, right? Now, this is the, now the last thing I'll say about, about it is more toward the forensic side where there's a little bit of a difference. Um, this is more the non-traditional, more niche uh, type career path that you can take in forensics. And that is being an expert witness uh, doing doing legal testimony, trial testimony, depositions, mediations, and arbitrations. Expert witness and becoming a business partner takes a lot more time and experience to work towards. So that's kind of the, if your goal really is the highest ceiling, that's that will probably take you about two decades, really, hmm. uh, to get there. Um, and as far as expert witness goes, you know, maybe I might co-sign with another professional engineer at maybe the seven, eight, 10 year mark. I'm just kind of throwing numbers out there. I don't yeah. really know for certain. It's just a matter of how much exposure and experience and time have you spent to the point where an attorney or a client will trust your uh, your track record and your experience to be able to deliver what they're looking for. Yeah, that's perfect. Alan, what other duties might be involved in civil engineering in your day-to-day that people may not realize as part of the job? Anything that we haven't covered? Writing. Writing is, is a tremendous skill uh, that's good, that is often abused and neglected within the engineering uh, industry. And as we mentioned earlier, the engineer's job is to convey technical solutions and technical information to a non-technical audience, right? right? So, so much of what we learn in high school and middle school is rhetorical or persuasion-based writing, right? Doing an annotative analysis of a book, you know, summarizing a thesis statement. That stuff is, no, is found nowhere in technical writing, right? Essentially, to sum up 
the 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 soul of technical writing is tell this to me in five sentences or less, or I'm finding another engineer. Yes. And, and make, and make it, make it make sense. Right. And so technical writing is concise. It's efficient. Semantics are so, so, so important uh, in what we do and, and having an engineer that's a good communicator and in, in particular, a good writer, a good technical writer, not a good rhetorical writer, but a good technical writer. Uh, you're worth your weight in gold. That's such a good answer. I've I've made this point on other podcasts, but it bears repeating. Writing in the business world in any any type of scenario is so different than how we write in school and how we're taught. You're right. 100%. It's rhetorical writing that that we are taught in school and yes. almost always they want to know like get to the point, make it clear, concise yep. and as short as you possibly can to convey That's the right. necessary information. So, if you don't take any other tips from this podcast, if you're not interested <laughs> in being a civil engineer, learn how to write short, concise yes. to the point. That is, and, and it is worth its weight in gold. 100%. And as an encouragement to your listeners, I would say that nobody when they go into their first full-time job in an industry like this, you're not nobody's expected to know those things. You learn as you go, okay? And and and, and a good employer, an ind- indication of working for a good employer is going to recognize those things. It's it might be tough at first to think, you know, wow, I don't, how am I supposed to have any confidence in in what I'm doing if I don't know anything? But your employer and your peers are going to know that, and in as much as you. And all it is is play the long game, stay patient with yourself, and you accrue those skills as you go. It's like Rome wasn't built in a day and a good engineer wasn't built overnight either. Yeah. And feel free to ask questions. You know, there you can take initiative yes. and show try try to find the answer as best you can on your own. But when you get stuck, ask people for help and like Absolutely. reach out to on, mentors. On day one, I was told uh, by my by the owner of the firm that I work for, Mr. Moody, mm-hmm. uh, he said, it's impossible for you to ask enough questions. He said, by you asking more questions tells me that you're hungry. It tells me that you're what, what path you're on, what your interests are. And, and it gives him the trust and accountability and assurance of knowing what I'm doing so that I'm not just tucking myself in a corner and, you know, two weeks, two weeks, a month go by. And it's, it's like, you're not even solving the problem I asked you to do, you know? So asking questions is, is a tremendous sign of humility and confidence for your peers and your employer. That's good. That's a good employer right there too. I'm glad yes. you found a good one. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Alan, talk to me a little bit about how COVID has affected things. Are you guys, have you shifted to a hybrid work schedule? Are you fully back in the office or what does that look like? Wonderful question. And so, and I think the, my answer is going to be a direct result of the size of my company. Mm-hmm. Okay. So essentially within the civil engineering industry, you have small size firms, mid-sized firms, and large firms. Smaller firms, my opinion is that they're anywhere less than maybe 40 employees, 50 employees total. Your mid-size can get anywhere from 50 to a couple hundred employees. Mm-hmm. And your large firms are three, four, five hundred up to the thousands of employees. Your HDRs, your Cobb Finleys, your half associates very big firms. Because my firm is so small, we actually didn't violate any of the COVID protocol for the city of Austin. Hmm. And so because we we never have more than 10 people inside the office. But because our job in our industry is so team oriented, our job is so much more efficient by us being together. So when COVID hit, I'm not kidding. I maybe worked from home 10 days in two years as a result of COVID, just because maybe I was exposed you know, or the initial shutdown, the initial lockdowns happen. But civil engineering is not a conducive industry for remote work. It's so much more efficient and so much more easy 
in the day-to-day experience to have your team together, to have everything printed out, to draw it out and explain things visually than it is to talk through talk through things over the phone or through Zoom. It slows us down. It's inefficient. And so if you're someone who's looking for a more remote work type scenario, civil engineering is not for you. It's very, civil engineer is for the visual learner. It's for the kinesthetic learner, yep. right? Hands on. Hands on, hand, exactly. Well answered. Thank you, Alan. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so what's the most challenging part of your job, would you say? I would argue that the, that the most difficult part of my job from my own personal learning experience is really the juggling aspect of what I do. Hmm. The best metaphor that I can come up with is you're burning eight to 10 candles at one time, and you're trying your best to make sure that that all of those candles burn down at the same rate, right? And so I've got right now, for example, I've probably got six or seven different projects that I'm managing and designing right now. But I have to make sure that when when my when a certain client calls and says, hey, where are we at with this project? I've got to make them think that they're my most important and my only client, right? But but I don't want to be, I don't want, but I'm not a liar. I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm always going to tell them the truth, yeah. but it's always making sure that I'm wearing the appropriate hat, is what we call it. And so as a civil engineer, because you got to do a little bit of a little bit of geotech, a little bit of transportation, a little bit of environmental engineering, a little bit of forensic work, a little bit of materials, a little bit of construction. You've got to be able to, to switch your technical services hat as much as you can your interpersonal or your soft skills hat, yeah. right? And so the most the challenging part for me is making sure that I'm burning all my candles at the same rate or that I'm, all of the, the pins or the balls that I'm juggling in the air, make sure that none of them hit the ground, that they're all attended to, they're all cared for, making sure that everything's progressing at the same rate. Like my boss, for example, is very ADHD. He's very good at switching gears. I'm not. I like to be in my lane and be and focus on exactly what I'm doing. It's hard for me to switch gears. And that's a skill that I'm, I'm not very good at right now, but I'm working on that. It sounds like it's the project management side of the business. It's determining the critical path, finding that, okay, yes. this has to be done week one. This has to be done week two. We yes. can't really get done to this until week 10. And, but exactly. we need to get the materials for it now, you know, all of, all of those decisions. And then you're doing that obviously for multiple projects at a time. Do you guys use a software for that? Is that a skill that you just do on pen and paper? How do you actually manage that? So personally, I do it by pen and paper. Uh, I just, I retain things better when I write them. Microsoft just a couple of years ago came out with a, with a little notepad app or, or Microsoft to do is what it's called. And I use that all the time. It's great. I love being able to see, you can put all your sub steps in there, but, but I would say for the benefit of someone who's interested in this industry, You've got to be able to switch gears at a moment's notice. And, and for me, and it's different for every for every individual, but for me, what works best is one of the first things that I do every morning when I come into the office is every day, multiple times a day, I reassess my calendar and my task and my to-do list, right? I've got to make sure that, like I said earlier, my candles are going at the same rate, making sure I'm not forgetting anything, making sure I'm not missing anything. It's not that that's all due in the same day. But it's just making sure that I'm staying on top of everything, spending an hour here, two hours there, three hours there. That's pretty true for any project manager in any industry, yeah. running all those candles at any at any given time. So time management, that's the challenge of this job. Yes, 100%. And if I may kind of expound on that really quick, yeah. that you peaked a, an interesting thought that I had. One of the big misconceptions about the engineering industry is a lot of what people see kind of in the classroom and in the academic setting. And my now employer shared with me when I first applied for this job, he told me that he could not care less what my GPA was in school. Okay. And I echo that at this point in my career too, because if someone is going out and say you want to be an engineer or you want to go into some other industry and you went to a four-year university to get that job, 
if your future potential employee already cares about what your GPA was in school, you're already a number to them. Okay. And so my advice to you is if, if you're looking for a job and your employer is already harping on the numbers that are associated with your potential of your past, then that means that they're already looking at you like you're a number. Okay. You want an employer that's going to value your personhood above all else. We have this saying that I've heard a few times that's uh, working to live versus living to work. Yeah. Okay. And so you don't want to, if you're working as a means to live, you don't want to go work for somebody who's living to work. Right. If you want to live to work, great. Go find somebody who you're working with that's going to have the same philosophy. But if you're working as a means to provide for your family or to travel or to fund your hobbies, whatever, go work with and for someone that's going to enable those things. So as you're looking for a job, some red flags to look for are are they already trying to associate you with numbers? Right. But what my boss told me was what your college degree tells me is that you can manage your time. Okay. You can invest in something long-term. You can solve problems. You can work with people. And it's those, that main group of skills that people are looking for in terms of how good of an employee or or how good of a person to work with is this guy going to be. I love that. Having those values align with you and your employer. If you guys are in sync, then you're on track for more success from both of each other. You know, that way, that way you can live the life that you want to live and they can get the production out of you that they actually want. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's perfect. And and that's hard to find. So if you go find a job and and that's not the case right out of the gate, please don't be discouraged by that. Keep looking, keep searching. Nobody has has their life figured out in their 20s. You know, your life is going to be completely different 10 years from now than what it is today. Yeah. Well, that's a testament to this podcast. You know, we, that's the point, you know, people are hopping jobs more and more these days. People are trying to figure out what do I actually want out of my life? Like, Hey, I tried this. It wasn't what I thought it was. That's the whole point of what we're doing is talking to people that are in different roles and getting a peek behind the curtain into their life and seeing, you know, what's worked for them. Why, why are they happy? Why are they satisfied with their job or why are they not satisfied? And so that I can avoid that. (laughs) Exactly. And and I think to, to speak on that just really quickly, I think the rock and the hard place that a lot of people find themselves in between are on the one side, finding a job that's fulfilling, that puts food on the table, you know, they're, they're happy with the level of income. But the other side of, of that is trying to invest in something that you are fearful it's not going to work out, right? And, and I think that at the end of the day, it is never too late to change careers. And I mean, if you can help it earlier, then yeah, do your best now. But don't think that you have to go that the first job that you find is, oh, it's over. I, I've, I've, I've wasted all this time. I've wasted all this money. One of the greatest benefits that I've come across is that if you do something and you realize you don't like it, that's great. Now you've realized that, hey, I don't like this. Now I know what to avoid. I can't echo that anymore. I've had many, many jobs over the course of my 20s. And each time I've learned something that I loved, something that I didn't like, and I got closer and closer to what I actually wanted. And I think that very, very few people know what they want to do coming out of high school, get the certifications and training and education necessary, go and do it and do that for the rest of their lives. That's the minority of people. And if you're one of those people, that's more power to you. That's awesome. I'm glad that you knew what you wanted to do. But most people, it's not going to be the case. That's okay. That's expected and normal. Yeah, exactly. That's good. All right. So Alan, you kind of mentioned one of these before, actually. So maybe your answer will be the same. Going to talk about stereotypes about the job, your line of work. 
What do people wrongly assume about being a civil engineer or just engineering in general? What I find, what I found so far in my brief experience, one of the biggest misconceptions is that all engineers are introverts. I think Reed touched on this in your previous episode. Um, And what a lot of people don't realize is if you are an extrovert and you believe that you can handle the numbers and the tech savviness that's, that's required to be an engineer, the sky is the limit. Having an engineer that can communicate effectively and has interpersonal skills is you're you're worth your weight in gold. Okay. And so there, even within the engineering industry, there are essentially two types of engineers. There's your introverts and your extroverts. I would say the introverts probably outnumber the extroverts four to one, you know? Right. Uh, and, and so, but I would say more stereotypically, one of the biggest misconceptions is, is that, you know, engineers are more introverted and across the broad macro engineering field. I would say that's true. But if you are more extroverted, I would actually make an argument that the civil engineering is not as technically complicated. It's one of the quote unquote easier fields of engineering mm-hmm. compared to electrical, aerospace, you know, all those sorts of things. Yep. So you're not going to be as technically challenged, but interpersonal skills and soft skills are all the more dependent yes. needed in civil engineering because it's so much more, more client-based. It's more business-oriented, right? I'm dealing with, with, like I said, regulatory agencies and attorneys, developers, people with money that just don't have, they don't want to give you the time of day. They don't want a two-hour report. Like I said, tell it to me in five seconds or I'm finding somebody else. Alan, is there anything that you wish that you knew about the job or the industry when you were first starting out? If you could talk to 22-year-old Alan and be like, dude, let me let me simplify this for you. Let me tell you. Yeah. If I could talk to 22-year-old Alan, I very much would have wanted to share with him the value of working for a smaller company versus working for a larger company. Okay. There are a lot of large engineering companies out there that those are the ones that show up to the career fairs. When you're in school, you go to the career fair and you see all these big, awesome companies with all these amazing projects. They're trying to, you know, quote unquote, dangle the bait. They want you to be impressed with what they're doing. You know, they're hiring like there's no tomorrow. But the guys that the people that you don't see there are the little guys. Hmm. Okay. And so I was wanting to go work for one of these larger companies, but I was nervous because at larger firms, it's common, uh, especially in the civil engineering industry, to kind of just be put on a little small part of the conveyor belt, so to speak, uh, or to be really even more niched within a specific department or a specific task. You know, engineers, uh, there's kind of a saying that's gone around that I've heard about engineers that engineers are the expert on what they do, but they don't know anything else outside yeah. of that. Like what, what they do, they're the best at, but you get them outside of that niche, they don't know anything, right? Yeah. And, and I find that to be true, right? But I wish I would have told my younger self that it's worth your time to research and go dig for other companies that might be more aligned to your work-life balance and your interests, at least from a technical perspective, right? Because I can't tell you if someone walked in to to my office, who's a senior in college right now and said, Hey, I found your company online. And I really love what you guys do. I want to learn more. I'm interested in working here. I would hand that guy, that person a blank check, because that shows me that they're, they've got the initiative and the drive to go out and look for what they want to me as their, you know, as their superior, or even as their peer, gives me more security in knowing that that I can trust that they're they're not going to be lazy. They're going to have the drive and I can they're, and they're going to have the dependability that I'm going to develop trust with in going forward. Like they're a long-term career partner. Yeah. So um so don't be afraid. There are so many opportunities if you're look out there looking for a job, 
go out and look for it. Okay. And, and I mean, past the career fair, don't just go to your college career fair, figure out, Hey, do I like Dallas? Do I like Houston? Do I like Austin? Do I like California? Do I like New York? Go and do a Google search, type in civil engineering, you know, California, civil engineering, Dallas, Fort Worth, go find the companies because the smaller guys are the ones that don't have the PR firms or the marketing teams to go out to these career fairs and put themselves out there, but they are starving for new prospective good employees. That's so interesting. So going back to the internships, you mentioned that you did two internships, but obviously you found it through a separate network that wasn't even related to related to that. That's how you found yes. your job. How important do you think internships actually are? Do you think that it's kind of just like, yeah, you want to see that they've checked that box before you want to roll the dice on them? Or do you ever see people get jobs without internship experience? Yes. Uh, I have definitely seen people get good jobs without internship experience. Uh, my personal opinion on the matter is probably 50-50. Okay. You don't need them, but where you can get them, it's definitely a benefit, like yeah. I said. And, especially, and I would say the main reason is because I would encourage people looking for internships, like if you're still a ways off from finishing school, to branch out. If, if, you're, if you're focusing on electrical engineering or aerospace engineering, find something within your field, in my case, civil. Uh, I did, uh, one of my internship experiences was doing transportation. Transportation engineering was the least interesting one to me hmm. in, in the subsets of civil engineering because, well, let me back up. The reason why I wanted to pursue an internship that was contrary to what I was looking for is because I wanted to make sure that a few reasons. One, I didn't like it, you know, and, and that I would, that I didn't, because my part of my fear was getting into a job that I've invested so many years, so much time, so much blood, sweat and tears and money, and then getting into it and realizing this is not at all what I thought yes. it was going to be. And that's what I think one of the biggest fears that people have is investing so much into their, their career and then finally getting into it and realizing that they hate it. You know what I mean? So finding an internship, finding more internship opportunities is going to help you determine what you like and what you don't like. And if you don't like it, take that in stride and, and realize that, okay, now I know what to avoid. I can jump ship or change gears or look for something else. It's better that I know now and not three or four or five years from now. That is such a good answer. Again, parroting what I said before, that's the point <laughs> of this podcast. And yeah, shadow people, ask if you can yes. ask if you can uh, pick their brain or even be with them on a work day. I mean, not yes. everybody's going to say yes to that, but the more, the more you can get a peek behind the curtain and see what is the day-to-day -day life like, the more you know that your investment into that career is going to be worth it or not. And then you can pivot out of it. Absolutely. You can get just as much out of a three-month internship as you can finding someone who works in the industry and just going having dinner with them. It's very true. So related to that, Alan, who do you think would be a good fit for this career? And then who might go into this all gung-ho, ready to go, and then five years down the road realize, I do not like civil engineering? Exactly. Yes. If you are a thinker, if you love numbers, if you love problem solving, if you love systems thinking, and you're very long-term oriented, you're looking to invest in yourself in, in cultivating and developing personal skills, technical skills, something that like, for example, one of the things that I love to think about is job security. If everything went belly up tomorrow, how much could, how much could I trust in knowing that I'm still going to have my job? That is a tremendous blessing to have 
especially when you have people that are dependent on you. If you've got a spouse or a partner or, or children, you can save a lot of sleep and a lot of hair in your head <laughs> by knowing that you have job security, right? And, and part of the reason that I chose water resources engineering specifically is that water is such a dependent and needed resource, right? Yes. And so you can you can take economic factors it's very wise to take economic factors into your career choice. But if you are someone who is more patient, someone who you believe works well in a team oriented environment, and you're not afraid of numbers and you're, and you're willing to commit to a career that spans 20, 30, 40, 50 years, then civil engineering is, would be a fantastic fit for you. On the other hand, if you're not as number oriented, if you're not as tech savvy, you know, if, if you, if you like to travel, right. One of the, one of the, Big things about civil engineering that a lot of people don't realize is that civil engineering is infrastructure. Yes. So likewise, the civil engineer needs to be around and amidst the infrastructure, right? I'm kind of a country guy. I love going out and fishing, you know, and going to the range and traveling, you know, all through sorts of all, all kinds of rural areas. But a civil engineer can't function in a town of 2000 people, right? A town of 2000 people just can't support that level of work and, and that level of demand. So that's why 99% of civil engineering firms are in metro areas like Austin and Houston and Dallas. And so if you are a city person, civil engineer could be a great fit for you. But if you're more rural and you want to be away from the hustle and bustle, civil engineering is probably not for you. There is a balance to be had. Like, for example, like, you know, in Austin, really the most affordable places are probably 30, 45 minutes outside of town. Yeah. You know, and so Austin is a place where if you're willing to put up with a with a difficult commute, you can be a little bit more rural and be a little bit more affordable, but you're obviously going to lose a lot of time over the years to your commute. You know, yeah. so so as a civil engineer, you really need to do it, take account into the environment that you want to go live in. All right, Alan. So we've talked a lot about a lot of the good stuff. How stressful do you feel like the job is? Do you feel really stressed out ever? Is, is it super busy? Talk to me about that. It's a great question. So First things first, I'll say this, no job is perfect, right? It's perfect. People don't exist. Perfect jobs don't exist. Uh, is there stress in my job? Absolutely. Um, but it is nowhere to the point where it compromises my day-to-day existence outside of work, right? And so every job is going to have the day-to-day stresses and pressures that come along with it. But for me personally, as a manager, the primary source of my stress primarily comes from client services and juggling to tell you the truth. And so I really enjoy talking to people. And so extra, more extroverted struggles that more engineers will have struggles that more stereotypically introverted engineers will have with more extroverted like qualities are a little easier for me. Right. And so, but that's something that, that, that works for me. Right. But, but at the same time for, for someone who's a little bit more introverted, they might have a, a more stressful day for them might look like not being able to efficiently solve a particular design. You know, that doesn't bother me as much as someone who, you know, always kind of got their nose on the grindstone and trying to crank out designs and problem solving. For me, my stress is, am I making sure that I'm taking care of the people around me? Yeah. And and equal to that, part of my, my responsibility is, is training and coaching and sort of leading the team and rallying the team around on the various projects that we have. And so, my stress comes from, you know, if I want to know what's going on, you know, and so I want to be commu- if, if I'm not communicating with people and people aren't communicating with me, that really 
makes my job a lot more difficult. And I'm only inducing stress on myself by not talking to people and not putting myself out there. Yeah. Related to stress, talk to me about the hours that you typically work in a week. Obviously, there's some weeks that are busier, some that are yes. less busy. Typically, eight to five, nine to five. What what hours are you working? Typically, it is eight to five. Uh, and so, however, I would encourage people to be on the lookout for, I, I would encourage your listeners to be on the lookout for an employer who is in line with your lifestyle choices, right? And what I mean by that is we, we mentioned earlier living to work versus working to live. Everybody that I work with here, even though it's not very many, is very much in the camp of working as a means of living. People have children. People want to take vacations. They have other things outside of work that gives them more fulfillment, right? Work is not our number one priority. And so as far as my day-to-day hours go, they're very flexible. You know, so some days I'll work nine to six. Some days I'll work seven to four and or somewhere in between, right? On a day where I work 10 hours, uh, I'll work six hours the other day, you know, because in the nature of consulting, right, I'm a salaried employee. You're like, as an engineer, you're, you're going to be salaried, right? And so the expectation is you're, you're going to need to put your 40 hours of time in every week, right? And so some of these larger firms are not afraid to say, hey, we'll pay you overtime, but you need to work more, you know, yeah. whereas that's not the policy at the company that I work for. We don't do overtime here, but the reason is, is because on the weeks that require more time, you know, say I might work 40, 45 or 50 hours one particular week on a busier week. If the next week is that much slower, no one's going to bat an eye if I take a 36 hour week. Yeah. Okay. And the reason being is because you want to give your employers and your peers every reason to trust you until they don't. Don't give them a reason not to trust you. Right. And so if you if you get if you show up and you get your work done and you're dependable and you're you're humble and you're you're not rude and all of these sorts, all of these soft skills that people preach on all the time they're going to give you a lot more leeway and a lot more privileges in your day to day because because life happens. You need to go to the doctor. You know, you you want to you want to break from work. I'm getting ready to go on vacation for two weeks. Yep. So, and, and I'm trying to make it a goal to where I don't take my computer. But because I've accepted voluntarily more responsibility with my job, I'm probably going to have to take it. But that's something that I chose. Right. <laughs> if I would just cho- chose to remain a project engineer, I could just flip my switch, shut my computer and walk out the door and say, hey, I'll see you in a week. You know what I mean? So, yeah. What's the turnover like, Alan? Do you see people ever get burnout in this career path or do people seem pretty happy once they're, once they've settled in? Great question. So because I work for a smaller firm, I don't have as broad of a perspective on, or a better reflection on what the industry wide burnout or turnover rate is. I can speak personally to, in all of the people that we've hired in the four and a half years that I've been here, only one has quit. And that's out of five people. So probably 20%, you know, just as a micro perspective. And the reason being is, was because once he is exactly what we were talking about earlier, he got into it and it wasn't what he expected it to be. And so he decided to change, you know, but he had gone to school, got his engineering degree. He was 24 years old. He worked here for two years and decided, you know, I want to go into construction. And so we did, you know, so again, like we said, you've, you've heard on your previous episodes, there's nothing wrong with figuring out that, you know what, this isn't what I thought it was. Maybe I can take what I've learned here and translate it to somewhere else and go pursue another path. And so, but I will tell you just from my own friends, my, my classmates from school, my peers that I know through other companies, there is a more consistent rate of burnout at the larger companies. There is a higher risk reward spectrum uh, and more of a vertical ladder to climb at the bigger companies. Um, but at the same time, 
it's my personal opinion that, that those positions are a lot more, they, they prioritize work at a higher place in their life than say I would. You know, it, at some point you've got to decide, you've got to settle on a level of complacency. I'm not saying settle for anything, but you've got to get to a point of satisfaction and say, you know what? Because if you if you live your life wanting more and more and more, you will live the rest of your entire life in that state of yes. want. And so you've got to draw a line at some point. And I've been very blessed and fortunate being only 27 and have already felt like I've gotten to a place where I have a lot of complacency and satisfaction with where I am and the opportunities that I think I have going forward. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about compensation, Alan. What's a realistic compensation range for early career, mid-career, late career? Great question. So first and foremost, compensation expectations are going to vary based on where you live. Okay. When you live in more urbanized areas, for example, the city of Austin has a disproportionately higher cost of living compared to the rest of the country. Yes. Maybe with the exception of New York City and Southern California, you're not going to find a more expensive place to live, right? Real estate here is insane. I've been trying to buy a house for like two years now, and it's just been a nightmare. It's, yeah, I know. Yeah. First world problems, you know, uh, but but anyway, but the point is, uh, so the, the figures that I can speak to as far as compensation go are specific to where I live. Okay. And so for the city of Austin, you can, ex or, the, or the city of Austin or central Texas specifically, yeah. you can expect compensation right out of school as a civil engineer in the 65 to $70,000 range. That's, that's without having passed any of your certifications. You wouldn't have to pass the FE exam or the PE exam. That's just straight out of school. You get a job, 70K. That's right out of school yep. as a staff engineer. Next step, being a project engineer, when you've you've got a little bit more experience under your belt, maybe the two to three years into your career, you can expect somewhere in between 70 to 90, yep. somewhere in there, not quite to six figures. As a project manager, uh, you can expect somewhere between the 100 to 140 range. This, these are all salaries prior to end of year bonuses or performance-based incentives or commissions or stock sharing opportunities. Uh, and then ultimately the business partner level or expert witness or independent consulting roles are in the 200 plus category on the base salary range. Now, if you have a, just a booming year and the economy's humming, like for example, uh, we have, we don't have performance-based bonuses here. We have profit sharing at the end of the year, right? And so you get a cut based on what the company, it's kind of like, I like it. you know, if you're a waiter, you go to a restaurant and you do like community tips, like the restaurant gets $200 in tips and you've got four waiters. So each waiter gets 50 bucks. You know, that's, it's kind of the same principle for profit sharing at the end of the year. So I get an annual bonus every year um, in addition to my base salary. Yeah, that's good. Alan, I got like two or three more questions for you, man. I feel like we've been rocking and rolling. I agree. Um, <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. Do you have any uh, funny or interesting on-the-job stories that you can think of that would be fun to share? So it's a great question. So you you, you sent me this one previously, and, and I had to I had to think for a second about this. The only one that I could really come up with, okay? So um, a few of us at my firm are members of an organization called the Real Estate Council of Austin, or RECA, uh, as it's known here locally. And it's a place where real estate agents and business developers and engineers and bureaucrats can kind of get together and just kind of talk about the state of the market and what's going on and what we can expect in the future and, and network, right? That's, that's, the, that's the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the lifeblood of everything, right? right? So when I went to my first RECA meeting uh, about three years ago, right? I'm a year out of school. I'm the young guy. They call me bear cub, you know, <laughs> I'm not supposed to know anybody, you know, and so I'm just showing up just to kind of see what it's like. It's my first time there. 
And there's probably, you know, six or 700 people there. Well, I'm sitting there shaking hands with people. I don't know them. They don't know me. And I look at the front right before the event's about to start. I see a guy that I go to church with. And I told my two coworkers, the two owners of the firm that I was with, I said, hey, there's a guy that I know. I'm going to go say hi to him real quick. I'll be right back. So I go over there. I say, hey, Jack, what's going on, man? And I, I shake hands with him. And, you know, he's introduced me to some of his friends. And I come back and sit down and my boss looked at me and he goes, who in the world do you know uh, at this event? And I said, oh, it's just a guy that I go to church with. And he goes, well, who is it? And I said, it's a guy by the name of Jack Tisdale. And he about fell out of his seat because he's he's one of the premier architects in Central Texas. He's He's got his stamp on like half the buildings in downtown Austin. And I didn't even know about that. I didn't know that about him at the That's time. That's not what you knew about him. Exactly. Like, <laughs> you just knew he was a Christian. Exactly. I, I just knew him as the guy that sat in the next pew for me, and, and, we, and he yeah. takes me to play golf every now and then. And so they're like, oh, and so here I was after the meeting was over, introducing my coworkers to Jack, and you know they're kind of fangirling because they're getting to meet the great Jack Tisdale, and I'm like, to me, he's just a, you know, he's like a, a grandpa to me, <laughs> you know. Way to go, Bear Cub. There you go. That's right. That's exactly what it was. That's awesome. I love it. Yep. All right, Alan. So final question for you, man. What's the best practical advice you would give to someone who wants to do what you do? Resources, next steps? You got it. So I would advise someone to start as broadly as possible. Okay. So e even though this is this episode, we're talking about civil engineering and forensic engineering specifically, I would encourage all of your listeners to, to first ask, ask themselves, what do you want out of life? What purpose do you want to serve? What are your priorities now? What do you think your priorities will be 10 years from now? You know, yes. are you going to get to a point in your life where traveling is going to be more fulfilling and more important to you than your job? Is, is your family going to be more important? Is your faith going to be more important? Decide as soon as possible and be thinking about what gives you the most fulfillment in life and make a list of your priorities. Put them in order, right? Once you determine your priorities in life and you find what you're looking for, you can then find and better settle in on and determine a career path for you that's going to align with your priorities and what and what purpose you want to serve in life. For me, civil engineering was perfect because I can reasonably expect week to week that I'm going to work 40, 45 hours, you know, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more sometimes. But that consistency allows me to better anticipate and better serve my family my loved ones and the things that give me more fulfillment outside of work. Right. So, so some, for some people, it might be the case that if you want to work exactly 40 hours a week, great, go for it, figure it out an, an engineering job could be a great fit for you. There are, there's enough flexibility in our industry to where if you want to work a 40 hour week, great, you're not going to really move up vertically that much, but if you want to put in the extra time, blood, sweat, and tears while you're young and climb that ladder that opportunity absolutely is there. And yes. so as far as specifically uh, civil engineering field advice goes, I'll tell you a quick story. So when I was trying to decide on what kind of engineering I wanted to go into, I had it narrowed down to two different disciplines, petroleum and civil. And if petroleum was attractive to me because petroleum engineers are notorious for getting paid, right? And they're getting right. a lot of money, right? And I was like, man, because... Income absolutely should be a factor in you deciding what career you want to pursue. That's why you work. That's why you work, right? Everybody's got to earn money, right? And so, but, but I, the reason I decided against petroleum was because my personality was better suited for, I would rather take a pay cut for more job security. 
Yeah. Petroleum engineering kind of has that, that uh, specifically petroleum engineering kind of has that feast or famine yeah, up or uh, down. type, that type perspective. Exactly. And so when, when, you know, when they, when the rigs are spinning and the drills are humming, like eating's good, you're, you're buying houses, you know, you're doing all this stuff, but when the market tanks, kind of like what we see, we saw with COVID, I personally would not want to put my family in that position. So do civil engineers make less than petroleum engineers? Yeah, they do. But because of that job security, I, like 10, my personality says 10 times out of 10, I'm taking a pick up for more job security, more consistent and realistic expectations for my career. So, um, so when you're trying to decide on a career path, really weigh the pros and cons of who are you taking care of? Is it just you? Is it your family? And really hone in on finding that balance of income and security and, and value and fulfillment. That's awesome. Alan? I learned so much, even though I've already talked to civil engineers about their jobs. I learned so much from you. I feel like this is going to be an excellent episode. I can't wait to release it. Wonderful. Well, Jamison, you're a rock star, man. I've really enjoyed doing this. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to keep tuning in on what you're what you're continuing to produce, man. So keep keep up the great work. This is very valuable. I Thank wish you. this existed when I was looking for my job in college, man. I totally would have been on board with Dude, this. That's exactly why I created it. I've had this idea for like over 10 years. And I was waiting for somebody else to make this podcast, somebody else wow. to make this as a blog or something. And nobody yeah. else made quite this, quite this show. And I just feel like we, we need it. You know, millennials, yes. Gen Z, even the generation coming up, people need, need insight, you know, and it's 100%. good to just hear from somebody that is, is doing well or doing medium or doing terribly and know yes. what their job is. And so that you can figure that out. So thanks for the vote of confidence. I appreciate it. Yes, that. sir. You got my support hundred percent. Thanks for listening to the What's That Job Like podcast. Two quick things. One, please subscribe and review the show. It takes less than a minute and it does a ton to help. Two, I would love your feedback. Is there a certain career you want to hear from, a question you'd like me to ask my guests, or anything else? Let me know. My email is jameson at whatsthatjoblike.com. Again, that's J-A-M-E-S-O-N at whatsthatjoblike.com. That is also where you can email me if you are interested in being a guest on my show. I am rapidly trying to get hundreds of interviews because I think that's how this whole project will come together and help as many people as possible. So again, please subscribe and I'll catch you next time. 